Let us open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for inspiring and preserving Thy Scriptures to us in our language. We thank Thee for 400 years of visible, demonstrative evidence that You have given the King James Version of the Bible Your divine stamp of approval. We pray that You would enlighten our eyes to understand the words that are found therein, that we would feast upon them, for we are to live by every Word of God. Bless us in this passage to see the two intents for which I open it to Thy people. In Jesus' name, Amen. When we preach and write and witness and testify to others about the doctrines of election and predestination, the obvious question comes up, how do I know that I'm one of God's elect? It should be a question that we all ask and answer. Paul would close out the second epistle to the Corinthians by asking them to examine themselves and to prove their own selves to make sure they themselves were not reprobates. This passage right here, I want our children, our young people, and all of us to remember for when we are asked or when we ask, how do I know if I'm one of God's elect? This is what God has given us. And it directly addresses that question. I read to you verses 5 through 11. In verse 1 of this chapter, Simon Peter has identified that the audience to which he wrote had obtained like precious faith already through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, it had been given to them. But now he says in verse 5, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. You want to make your calling and election sure. Your appointment by God to eternal life sure to you. Not sure to God. God's covenant is as sure as anything can possibly be sure and then some. But this is sure to you. You can prove that you are one of God's elect by these eight things. This language is the Holy Spirit's language. I am not ashamed of it. When it says, if ye do these things, ye shall never fall, I believe that. 
I preach that. We know that we are kept by the power of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. However, for the evidence that you will never be confounded in the great day of judgment, and for you to know that you are certainly one of God's elect, these eight things are what you should be doing. Eternal life is a gift of God to His elect, so we want to know if we're God's elect. If someone asks you, this is where you should take them first. This is the plainest passage because it it directly addresses the question and answers it. Here are eight things you do that Peter carefully defined as the proof to prove election and heaven. If these things abound in a man, as verse 8 describes, then your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is bearing the fruit that it should. If these things are lacking, in the best case, you're a carnal Christian, but you can't prove it. In the worst case, you're reprobate and you're not one of God's elect if these things are lacking. Therefore, because of that, we have the word diligent used twice. The word diligent is used in verse 5. The word diligence is used in verse 10. Diligence describes earnest and zealous exertion of effort and labor. So we should be putting forth great effort to do these eight things in order to have our calling and election made sure to us. The Apostle Peter would go on to say in the next four verses, verses 12 through 15, that as long as he was alive, and even though these saints that he was writing were presently established in this truth, he was going to repeat it because doing these eight things, he knew, along with the Apostle Paul, that he ought to affirm constantly that they which had believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Because that belief in God, which is the faith that verse 5 starts with, needs to have seven things added to it. So there is no inconsistency between Paul and Peter. And for four verses, the Apostle Peter writes this way, Wherefore, because this is the evidence, this is the assurance, this is the fruitfulness that leads to an abundant entrance into heaven, wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. That these eight Aspects of fruitfulness and godliness that we bear in our lives are the evidence of election and calling to eternal life and an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter, as a minister, uses four verses to explain this kind of information needs to be dealt with thoroughly and often, even if people may understand it They need to be reminded of it so that we can increase in our confidence and assurance of eternal life. Eight things. It sounds almost contrary to the doctrine of grace. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. But that's from our perspective. That's from our assurance. If we do these things, you can know when you appear before God, He is going to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The real goodness, the real faithfulness is all in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But for us to know that we are participants in Him, these are the eight things we ought to do. First, add to your faith. Faith is a gift from God. James chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that God has chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. Faith is the complete confidence and trust in God and His promises, including His revelation about the Lord Jesus Christ, that enables believers to resist doubts and fears and zealously obey God's commandments regardless of opposition or circumstances. Faith is what men had and women had in Hebrews 11 when they did this and they did that. Faith believes in the Lord Jesus Christ that He is the Son of God. Faith believes that He rose from the dead and is seated at God's right hand. Faith believes that that risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ is returning. Faith believes that He'll resurrect us from the dead if we have died. Faith believes that if we haven't, those that have died will meet Him first in the air. Then we which are alive and remain shall be gathered together with Him. Faith is everything that we know it to be and that we have taught before. But we are to add to that faith virtue. Virtue is fortitude. It is noble strength and moral purity to do what is good and right at all times. Like the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, where you probably think first when you hear the word virtue or virtuous, whose husband entirely trusted her in all things because she was virtuous. A virtuous person has the fortitude of character that they will always do what is noble, pure, and right. And so to add to our faith, we are to add virtue. The nobility and strength of character that always does what is right. Righteousness is not in the list. Righteousness is wrapped up under virtue. We want the strength of character to always do what pleases God, and we want to add that to our faith. I will trust that you already know about Proverbs 31 and the lengthy description given there. The Bible also says a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. The Bible says that Boaz told Ruth that she was a virtuous woman, and the people of his city knew that, the city of Bethlehem. But we want to add to our faith virtue. And I want you to love the word virtue. If the word is here, and it's in a list of eight things that confirm to us whether we are God's elect or not, we want to know it and love the word. So you men, are you virtuous men? Virtuous. Strength and nobility and purity of character that always results in doing what is right. Yes, Lord. We want to be virtuous. Help us to be more virtuous than we have been. This is what is to be added to faith. This is what is to be taught. Often, you are to keep these things in remembrance. And as long as a minister is alive, he should affirm these things constantly. At home, when no one is watching, are you virtuous? In your bed or when you're driving, are your thoughts virtuous? Men, are you virtuous? Wives, can your husbands absolutely trust you? Do you reverence your husbands? Are you their cheerleader constantly? Are you virtuous? And so much more could be said about every aspect of our lives, whether we show virtue or not. To that virtue, we are to add knowledge. These eight things are building blocks. It starts with faith. And isn't that what I taught you in the first sermon? 
If someone says, what do I need to do to be saved? The first thing we say is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we start adding, because that's just a foundation stone to which we need to add other building blocks. So we add virtue. Now we add knowledge. Knowledge is the increase in understanding of God, His Word, His righteousness, His wisdom, and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can approve excellent things in holding the truth and conforming more perfectly to His will. There are some lengthy expressions in Scripture, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. In both places, adding to our knowledge is expressed and described as increasing in knowing the will of God so that we know better how to please Him in discharging our activities in life. Increasing in knowledge. Peter is going to end this very epistle in 3.18 by saying, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to know everything we can acquire in the way of knowledge about Jesus Christ. We want to know Him as a person when He was here on earth. We want to know Him as a Savior in what He accomplished between God and us. We want to know Him as a King. We want to know His character. We want to conform our lives to Him. We want to increase in knowledge. We cannot sit still. We want to be in the house of God, to hear the Word of God opened. We want to learn Psalm 16. We want to learn Psalm 122 and verse 1. We want to learn from the book of Revelation that the martyrs in the faith were identified and addressed there. We want to learn James chapter 2. We want to learn Second Peter chapter 1. We want to increase in knowledge. We cannot say, I have faith, therefore I can relax as a Christian. We must press forward. First, we add the building block of virtue, of our character. Then we add the acquisition of knowledge about God, about the will of God. When I preach that series to you, Knowing God, by the grace of God, I tried to take it to lengths that I've never read. And it's not because you have a creative pastor. It's because we have a gracious Father in heaven. Do you remember the four categories of knowing God? and the extents of lengths we went to, quite a few sermons, to learn about what the Bible has to say about God. This is knowledge. If you are truly saved, do you know why you were saved? John 17.3 And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. That is why you were saved. God, our Father in Heaven, is independently happy. He created in order to reveal His wrath and power in some and to reveal His goodness and grace in others that we might know Him. Do you know why you were created? Do you know why you were conceived? Do you know why you were saved? Because it took your existence and then it took Him saving you in order for you to know Him. He is going to present glory to the universe by bypassing angels and saving some men and revealing Himself to them. And we will spend eternity rejoicing in our knowledge of the living and true God. And so, if you've been saved, you're going to want to increase in that knowledge of God. So it's the third building block that we add to our faith. 
We add to faith virtue, and we add to virtue knowledge. We want to know more about this God, because that's why He saved us. So desiring to know more about that God, and this God, our God, and making efforts to acquire that knowledge, by backing up, you realize, I have the gift of eternal life, or it wouldn't matter. Some of you greatly delighted in the series, Knowing God. Some of you greatly delighted in the series, He is Altogether Lovely. It is evidence of eternal life. We add to our knowledge temperance. Temperance, the self-discipline and self-control to rule your body and passions, moods, desires, in order to avoid those lusts of the flesh and lusts of the eyes that lead to sin against the Lord Jesus Christ. Temperance, self-discipline, alcohol, food, Lusts of the flesh, sex, thoughts, moods. You give in to your moods, you are a loser. You're not showing the evidence of eternal life. Your moods are not more powerful than you are. You can control your moods by making a choice. You have a quick tongue, you deny yourself speaking quickly. You learn how to hold back and not say what immediately comes to mind or what immediately is in your mouth. You deny yourself. This is taking up your cross daily and following the Lord Jesus Christ. This is building block number four. Do you deny yourself? Or do you give in to staying in bed longer than you should? Watching television that you shouldn't watch? Playing video games that you shouldn't play? Looking at things on the internet that you shouldn't look at? Having thoughts that you shouldn't think? Do you know that you are capable of saying, I will not think that thought? and shutting it down and cutting it off. That's called mortifying the deeds of your mind. That is temperance. That means you won't overeat. That means you won't overdrink. That means you won't overdo anything. That means you'll be moderate in all things. Lord, help us. Notice this list and its breadth and its depth, adding to faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance. Peter's getting us, isn't he? He's roping us in on every side. That if we were to keep these eight things, it is the evidence of eternal life. It is the evidence of God's election. You know I could turn you to many verses about temperance. That isn't my goal right now. I just want you to know what is here in this passage. I've taught you recently about the athletes of this world. They are temperate in all things to obtain a corruptible crown. But we should be temperate in the things that God has told us to be temperate in to obtain an incorruptible crown. We are supposed to run the race like they run a race. They don't care how many participants are in the race. Only one gets the prize. And we should so run and govern and rule our bodies that way. Our moods, our words, our thoughts, our actions, our lusts, our passions, our desires must be ruled to fulfill temperance. Next, and to temperance, patience. Patience, I've taught you the ability to cheerfully endure and survive negative events in your life, to remain calm and committed to the course of action prescribed by God for you. If God is with us, who really cares what happens to our body? If God is with us, who really cares what happens to our job? We'll make sure that you have bread and butter. If God is with me, who really cares what happens to my family? 
if God is with me. He is my portion in this life, so I can cheerfully endure anything that comes my way. We have had a stroke in this church. How much complaining did you hear? Did you hear a lot of cheerful thanksgiving? That it could have been the right side and the left side? And the middle side? It's an example. She ought not to be embarrassed. It's the grace of God in her life. And all of us have circumstances. Has the last week been trying for you? Has the last month been trying? Has the last year been trying? By the grace of God and fully believing in your faith, having having confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of God with you, you should be able to cheerfully endure negative events and stay the course for what God has called you to do. You may be cast down, but we never get destroyed, do we? We... You know, Paul got cast down. I like 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Why do I like Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Because sometimes I get cast down. But by the grace of God, never to be destroyed. To be destroyed is to lose your faith, to lose your godliness, to fall off the course. Paul finished his course. He kept the faith. He didn't lose it even for an hour. Lord, help us to be that way. That's patience. We want to add to patience, godliness. Godliness is religious sobriety with commitment to conform entirely to God's character and will for your life in contrast to worldliness or compromise that others make with sin. For instance, in Matthew chapter 5, we have in six verses, Matthew 5, 43 through 48, the description of loving your enemies. God loves his enemies. He sends sunshine and rain in his enemies every day. That, that is God's character. And that character is appealed to that we are to follow that. Be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Perfect in godliness. God treats His enemies that way. We should treat our enemies that way. And the appeal is made to that, that we can show that we are the children of God because we're showing the same divine nature that is mentioned in verse 4 that God has given us. God loves His enemies. We can learn to love our enemies. That's one part of godliness. And so we want to add that religious sobriety of being like God by committing entirely to His character and His will for our lives against worldliness. And that exa- I give you that one example. To godliness, we want to add brotherly kindness. You know, these building blocks are coming up higher and higher because... Now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. The last two are about love out of eight. Where is faith? It's number one. Where is hope? It's patience. Number five. Where is charity? It's number eight. Well, where is love? It's number seven. Number seven is brotherly kindness. It's the love that we show one another in Christ. It's 1 John 2, 3, 4, and 5. It's John chapter 13. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is the love of the brethren. It is loving others in this assembly. Brotherly kindness. It is love to the brethren. It is love because they're Christ. It is a cup of cold water to a disciple in a disciple's name. It is clothing. Hungry, bro- it is clothing naked brethren. It is feeding 
hungry brethren. What's the difference between brotherly kindness and charity? Charity is universal love to everyone else. We should love our enemies. We should love our neighbor. We should love our colleagues. And we should bestow on them and our brethren the forgiveness, the forbearance, the long-suffering that is part of the definition of charity. See, we like to think of brotherly kindness, and we should, as positive acts of love toward the brethren. But charity is the negative aspect of showing long-suffering, graciousness, mercy, forgiveness, and forbearance when they offend us and irritate us. And so that's the capstone. Because when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and the Apostle Paul told a church at Corinth that was envious of one another for the gifts, he said, Yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And that more excellent way was charity. And he goes on to describe charity in one long sentence of 15 phrases. And the first one is, Charity suffereth long. If you really love someone, you will suffer for a long time putting up with everything they do to irritate you. I need a lot of it from you. I need a lot of it from everyone, and we all need it from each other. I love that definition of love. It's one long sentence, and you look at all 15 phrases, and you say, Lord God, with an exclamation point, never has love been defined so well as in that one sentence of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. And so we have it, eight things. We have eight things. If we need more time on this, you're going to get it at some other time. I want you to look. I want you to focus your look right into verse 9. Those are the eight things that if you do them, they show that God has changed you because those things are not done by men by nature to please God ever. Verse 9. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged of his old sins. If you are not doing these eight things, you are blind to the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ because this is how he lived and this is how he expects you to live. You are short-sighted, cannot see afar off. When a person cannot see far off, that means they are short-sighted or near-sighted. That means that your focus is on this world and you have forgotten the other world. You are thinking about the short-term temporal benefits of this life instead of the long-term blessings that far outweigh this life that are coming in the next life. This is short-sightedness. And it shows a very poor memory. You have forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. Now you're adding to them new ones. When we're converted, we hear the wonderful gospel news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and purged them, washed them away, cleansed us from all unrighteousness. But if we're not doing these eight things, assuming the best, that we're truly one of God's elect that had our sins purged away, you've forgotten it because you're showing such a neglect of Christ's religion. You're blind. You're ignoring heaven. It must, you must think of heaven as being obscure and dull because you're, show, you're so short-sighted. All you can see are the foolish and ridiculous temporary things of life. A car, a job, a degree, bodybuilding, clothes, family. 
Why is that so sharp in your sight? And heaven so obscure? Because you cannot see afar off. You are forgetting what is most important. But I want that last clause. You have forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. Your degree of forgetting or remembering Jesus Christ's death determines your fruitfulness. To the degree that you forget about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you, you will not show much fruitfulness. To the degree that you remember it and consider it and think upon it, it will move you to fruitfulness. Do you know why we have the Lord's table? Do you know why there is a Lord's Supper? Do you know what Jesus said about each of the elements? This do, this do in remembrance of me. We don't do something with gold to remember His crown. We don't do something with a throne to remember His throne. We do something with wine and bread to remember His shed blood and His broken body. This do in remembrance of me. He wants to take us back to Calvary to show us what He did for us because that is what it took to wash away your sins. And if we would keep that in our memories like we should, we would bear these eight things easily, fully, gladly, and cheerfully for Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. Now do you see my second intent? My first intent is eight things we ought to do to make our calling and election sure. My second intent is does it fit with the Lord's Supper? Oh, it fits. It fits. Why do we have the Lord's Supper? To remember what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. How much are you gripped by what He did? Is He precious to you? In 1 Peter 2, 6-8, through 8, it says, Unto them which believe, He is precious. But unto them which disbelieve, or don't believe, He is a stumbling block. He isn't very exciting to them. Jesus was not exciting to the Jews. They were looking for some leader that would throw off the yoke of Rome and give them their national independence back. They didn't like Jesus of Nazareth. He threw off a yoke far worse than Rome. He threw off the yoke of sin, hell, death, condemnation, and the devil forever for his people. Come to Calvary with me at the Lord's Supper. And remember that we've been purged from our sins. There is everything in our flesh that stumbles at Jesus Christ. Everything in this world causes us to stumble over Jesus Christ. The devil does not want us to honor him for what he did on the cross. And so it is difficult. So we must come and humble ourselves, confessing our sins and remembering what Jesus did for us. That is why we have this supper. Jesus is never going to be on a cross again. He's never going to shed His blood again. His body's never going to be broken again. But He wants this supper kept perpetually to remind us of what is important. And if we would block out everything else and stop thinking about everything else and choose to come to Christ, to come to Calvary, to look on His agony, to look on His love, to look on His thorn-crowned brow, we can remember what He did for us. And the little bit that He asks from us will be automatic. And it will be full. And it will be done cheerfully. 
and it will be the evidence of eternal life. A man who grasped what Jesus did for him was the Apostle Paul. The love of Christ constraineth us. He was in a straitjacket. He couldn't do anything but serve Christ all out. For we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead, that they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him that loved them and gave himself for them. That's what we want to be like. The blood of Jesus Christ should purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9.14 You should want to talk about this greatest of subjects with any others that you get together with in this church. Malachi 3.16 For they spake often one to another and God wrote their names in a book and they shall be my jewels when I make up my jewels. I will show a difference between them and others. The greatest subject we can ever talk about in the mind of God is His Son Jesus Christ. Why do we have to keep doing this over and over again? Jesus died, rose again, and has been sitting in heaven for 2,000 years. Why do we have to keep doing this? Because everything in your flesh, the world, and Satan conspires against it. And we lose sight of it. And when we lose sight of it just a little bit, the diligence that we would ordinarily apply to these eight things dissipates. The more we can think of Christ, the more we will be helped. There are so many things I could, desired, and would tell you except for the sake of time. When I read Psalm 22, and when you read Psalm 22, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, Psalm? That is the bowls of Bashan, Psalm? That is deliver my darling from the power of the dog, Psalm? When you get to the end, it says, I will make known to all generations that he hath done this. When I get to Psalm 45, my favorite psalm about Jesus Christ's love for His church, the last verse says this. This is how important these things ought to be to us. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Do you want to make the name of Jesus Christ known to all generations? It should be the theme of our church. We want the preeminence of Jesus Christ in this church. We want His shed blood and His broken body, the preeminent subject of this church, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for Him and for our brethren. You have a little song that's been passed out to you. Would you please look at it? We have sung it once before. Some of you know it from other places. It's a prayer. There are... There are several per pew. Lead me to Calvary. It's a prayer. It starts out with the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and the commitment to Him. Then it asks, lest I forget, lest I forget, and be like Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 9, lest I forget, lead me to Calvary. Show me what took place when you died. Show me your thorn-crowned brow. Show me the tomb where you were laid. Show me the angels that protected you while your body slept. Show me wonderful saints like Mary that through the gloom of the darkness of the first day of the week came to the tomb 
with a gift for the Lord Jesus Christ. Show me the empty tomb that you're now in heaven. And then the prayer of commitment at the end, verse 4. May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee. That is what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 9. He bore his cross for us. Will we bear our cross for him? And will we take it up daily? That's temperance. Will we be willing? That's faith. It's Second Peter chapter 1. Are you willing to drink even of the cup of grief? Are you willing to share in the grief of the Lord Jesus Christ? Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said that I might know the fellowship of His sufferings. Until we are suffering, we cannot know the fellowship of them. And are you willing to drink from the cup of grief? And God is able to bring grief into your lives. God is able to bring grief. Are you willing to drink of it because He drank of the dregs of the wrath of Almighty God for you? Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. The reason we have the Lord's Supper is to be led to Calvary. It's to remind us of what Jesus Christ did for us so that we can do the things we ought to do for Him with great zeal, thanksgiving, appreciation, blessing, and cheer for the One who died for us. Now the Lord came to me yesterday morning and we had a little meeting in my office. And I give to you the words that start this song, and I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry at all for my emotion. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. That's how prayers ought to start. All the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're king of my life. I am your willing bond slave. I crown thee now. When we come to the Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus Christ, you're king of my life. I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. But Lord Jesus Christ, take me to Calvary and show me once again your thorn-crowned brow, your agony, what happened in Gethsemane, the tomb, and your love for me, that I in turn will take up my cross for thee and be willing to drink from any cup of grief you bring my way to have fellowship with you, even in your sufferings, because you have borne all for me. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Brother Eric, will you come and lead us in this song, please? Lead me to Calvary. King of my life,
Amen.